0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Hope M. Harrison about her excellent new book, After the Berlin Wall, Memory and the Making of New Germany, 1989 to the Present. Dr. Harrison, hello, and welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Yes, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on today. And, and Dr. Harrison, as a, as a matter of introduction, could you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm a professor of history and international affairs at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. I've been there for 20 years, and I teach classes on the Cold War, on Germany, Russia, and uses and misuses of history in international affairs.
0: Oh, Fascinating. Um, And uh, where did you get your Ph.D.?
1: So I got my Ph.D. at Columbia and my bachelor's at Harvard, where my interest in all of this began.
0: Um, And is this your second book, third book?
1: Yes, this is my second book. The first book, I seem to be obsessed with the Berlin Wall. Um, I just find it absolutely fascinating how on earth a city could be divided by a wall. And that interest began in college when I took a course on Soviet foreign policy and learned about the history that led up to the building of the Berlin Wall, and I wanted to learn more. So I learned Russian first and studied uh, the Soviet Union. At that point, it was the end of the Cold War, and they were, you know, had been our adversaries, so I wanted to know more about them. And then the more I studied, I focused on Soviet policy toward Germany and ultimately on the Berlin Wall. So then I learned German also. And uh, my first book was about the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961. And the second book that we're talking about today looks at how Germany, uh, how Germans look back on that period of their history, the 28 years when the Berlin Wall stood.
0: Um, Can you give us the title of your first book for those that might be interested?
1: (laughs) The first book is called Driving the Soviets Up the Wall. Um, What comes after the colon is Soviet-East German relations from 1953 to 1961. And for that, I kept flying back and forth between Moscow and Berlin in the 1990s, using the archives. So um, it, it it was the first book to be able to tell the true story of the communist decision to build the wall in 1961.
0: Well, uh, thank you for letting us know about that. I, I'm sure there'll be listeners that would be interested in to know about the building. Um, so you sort of address this a little bit, but um, I'm, I'm very curious as to the origin stories of this book. How, how did you come, you've mentioned your sort of career long passion for this topic, but this particular book, particularly doing a sort of historical memory of it, how, how did you come up with the idea to do this?
1: Well, partly Ber- Berlin has really become a second home to me over the past 30 years. Um, and uh, so I spent, I've spent much time there doing the research for my first book and then ultimately the second book, living in the city, watching the city come back together, watching what they did about commemorating people who were killed at the wall, watching how they handled anniversaries of the rise and fall of the wall. And um, that was coupled with my increasing interest in something that is incredibly topical in our country and our world right now in 2020, namely um, how nations deal with difficult aspects of their past. Obviously, right now, the issue is the civil war and racism, um, uh, which has been such a focus in the United States in the past couple of months and particularly the past few weeks, um, views of history don't stay the same. And people uh, and leaders often press through certain views of history at, at certain periods of time. Uh, and so I was curious to examine uh, how have Germans and particularly German leaders in public spaces on major anniversaries, how have they treated the history of the wall? And has that changed over the past 30 years? So this broad interest in the sort of the intersection of history, politics, and culture, um, which we're going through right now in terms of racism in the United States is something that I have looked at in my new book, on um, the history of the Berlin Wall.
0: Yeah, I I think it would be helpful for us to begin with you anchoring us um, in some of the concepts of your book. Uh, How do you study historical memory sort of from a a methodological standpoint? And and I'm also very curious to have you uh, describe to us what, what you mean or what a memory activist is. Is sort of the conceptual framework of your book, I think, will be important for us.
1: Thank you. Yes. Historical memory um, is how people, how groups, how nations, uh, more than individuals, obviously, those things are made up of individuals, but it looks um, in a broader perspective at how groups of people and nations judge or assess their past um how do they remember the past what are the stories they tell about the past what is the narrative um, which parts of the past uh, do they focus on um, and which others are they more quiet about um, what do political leaders say on important historical anniversaries? What kind of narrative do they build around the past that then gets spread through the media um, to to people? Um, how How is historical memory reflected in museums? You know, what artifacts people think are important enough to save and tell stories about. Uh, and even in popular culture, you know, how do you see, how is that history represented in, in books, in, in movies, in plays? Um, so the concept of historical memory is a broad one and is essential to every nation. Because every nation has a sense of where it comes from. Um, and what that means about who the people are now and who they want to be in the future. Um, So essentially, historical memory is deeply entwined with a sense of national identity. Now, obviously, in most cases, uh, countries want that national identity and historical memory to be positive, you know, things they're proud of in their history. It gets more complicated um, when they're dealing with things that are sort of black spots on their history. Um, uh, Most nations shy away from those. But Germany has been in a class almost by itself um, for dealing in a very forthright way with the most negative aspect of its past, namely the Holocaust. Uh, and so this study that I undertook with this uh, book looks at how have they dealt with the history of the Berlin Wall.
0: And you mentioned or you used the term memory activist. Can you, can you describe to us what that is?
1: Yes. A memory activist is someone who feels strongly um, two things. Number one, that a certain aspect of history should be remembered. And number two, that it should be remembered in a particular way. Um, and I guess number three, actually, in the case of my book, um, is that their, their views and their actions matter. They become part of the broader national Uh, historical memory or what many people call collective memory. So I'm not looking at, you know, individuals who just talk to their family or friends and, um, you know, have their own views on the past, but aren't trying to get those across in uh, a broader way in society. Looking much more at individuals whose actions ultimately have helped tell the story um of the Berlin Wall in Germany.
0: And I mean there's probably no way for you to answer this definitively, but uh do do you have a sense of how many people, like a percentage of Germans that were sort of interested in this as an issue? The Berlin Wall? Did they have <sighs> I guess an opinion poll <laughs> for the lack of a better um phrasing? well
1: there there have been certainly lots of opinion polls um, over time, um, uh, about how, um, questions like, do you think it's important to remember this part of our history? Do you think it's important to preserve sections of the Berlin wall? Now, in the early period after unification, um, so in the 1990s, um, There wasn't as much attention to this issue. The majority view uh, early on was, you know, leave this in the past. It was a terrible thing. It divided us. The whole point of bringing it down in 1989 and then uniting Germany in 1990 was to, you know, come together. And this divided past is difficult to think about. It was painful uh, let's, you know, let's leave it behind. Um, and so that's really where my book begins is with looking at some of the people who, who fought against that majority view and ultimately prevailed. But, you know, it took a long time and it often does in nations that have difficult aspects of their past, um, to grapple with. Uh, it often takes a generation until uh, there's sort of more energy and willingness, um, to look back at that difficult history.
0: Yeah. One of the reasons I asked that, wanted to ask that question, um, was because I think one of the really interesting things about your book is it, it does a really good job of highlighting the sort of ebbs and flows of when this is important, when it's not so important. And so also the, the people, the, the, the two sides, um, I I didn't quite realize there would be such defined um, sort of almost camps um, over this issue. Um, And so I think your book really highlights all of these things really well. And so I just wanted to give our listeners a sense of, you know, that this actually was a a pretty important issue throughout the entire country. This wasn't just some niche group of people uh, arguing over whether the wall should be preserved or not. This is something that people thought about. So uh, I appreciate you taking a second to answer that. Um, Now let's move to the sort of the first part of your book. Um, This first chapter of your book is something I'm sure a lot of people aren't familiar with. And it was the trials uh, of former East German border guards and some of their superiors. Um, Can you give us a brief overview of of these trials just in a general sense? and, And why did they decide to have them?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is part of the broad field of transitional justice. Um, Of course, countries coming out of, you know, more authoritarian regimes as the as communist East Germany was. Um, How do you handle what in a new, more democratic situation, you know, look to be crimes? Um, But weren't exactly crimes when they were committed. Um, So uh, with the case of trials regarding the Berlin Wall, uh, they were started when East Germany, the process was started when East Germany still existed. At the very end in 1989, when people were demonstrating on the streets, calling for Uh, reform of the communist regime, calling for democracy, freedom of expression, freedom of travel, um, bring down the Berlin Wall. Uh, In particular, some parents of people who were killed at the wall, generally young men who were killed at the wall trying to escape, uh, their parents brought cases um, against the East German regime. Well, Germany united less than a year after the fall of the wall. And so all of those cases were transferred to the new federal German uh, state prosecutor's office. So it was families who now worked with um, lawyers and prosecutors um, on these cases now, the lawyers and prosecutors were, of course, all from West Germany because they had been trained in West German jurisprudence. The East German communist law and lawyers and judges, you know, were discredited. So uh, they weren't really part of this. Um, so the trials went on um, for almost 15 years, actually. Most of them took place in the first few years um, in the 1990s. And um, these were trials both of the border soldiers who pulled the triggers, um, but also their military and political superiors um, for putting out the orders um, that the border soldiers then carried out. Now these were obviously very emotional um, undertakings. Um, the the families of the plaintiffs, uh, of course, were incredibly angry and wanted justice. As one of them said, um, for the cold blooded murder of my son. And the lawyers used all the documents in East German archives, in the secret police archives, in the military archives, in the top party leadership archives, um, West German archives that tracked uh, any information they got about people who were killed at the border. And so there was lots of evidence, and in most cases, particular border guards in in each case, um, confessed cause you know, all the documents were there. Um, uh, but it was a question of, uh, how individual border soldiers and their superiors responded in these trials and how the judges argued. Um, generally, um, the superiors for the most part, uh, tried to blame someone else. Um, they basically said either or both, it was the Soviets don't blame us. You know, we had to follow what the Soviets said and, you know, they dominated our side of the cold war, the Warsaw Pact, you know, we were sort of just doing what they wanted, except that there was all sorts of evidence um, of the ways in which the East German regime themselves had come to a variety of independent decisions on the Berlin Wall at various points, so that didn't hold up very well um although they kept using it um uh, not a lot of them expressed. A huge amount of remorse, which was really difficult for the families um, of people who had been killed sitting there in the courtroom, Um, as was the case with uh, Horst Schmidt, who I write a lot about, the father of Michael Schmidt, who was killed on December 1st, 1984, when he tried to escape. Um, uh, The judges ultimately ruled, uh, in the case of border soldiers, um, and in particular, the case of Michael Schmidt, um, ruled that the border soldiers were guilty. Um, and they got sentences of two, about two and a half years, but the sentences were commuted, uh, because the judges said they, they did something uh, wrong. There's no question uh, they did it, uh, but they were at the bottom of the command chain. And given that people at the very top were not speaking out against this, it's unfair for us to expect that people at the very bottom of the chain um, were acting against this. Um, I guess the final point I'll make is that there, there were, though all different kinds of reactions of border soldiers. I mean, some fired away from the people on purpose. Some people fired at their feet, you know, on purpose. Um, Others fired many times at the torso. So, you know, you get very much a sense of the, the individuality of what, um, the Berlin Wall meant, what the lethality of the Berlin Wall meant, uh, depended, not surprisingly, very much on each individual border soldier.
0: And you mentioned that um, some of these border soldiers' superiors were tried. Were their sentences um, any different, better, worse?
1: Um, the, the superiors generally got, um, more, uh, higher sentences. Um, so the entire communist leadership, the Politburo leadership, um, was put on trial in what were called the Politburo trials. So it was the top military leadership. Um, they got four, five, six, seven years, uh, in prison but most of them were let out after a few years because of good behavior. Some of them were very old and in some cases got cancer, um, as in fact happened with the last leader of East Germany, Erich Honecker, who was the leader from 1971 until October of 1989, a month before the wall came down, um, he got liver cancer, and ultimately the court allowed him um to leave uh to not only to end the trial but allowed him to go to join his wife and daughter in Chile, uh, which completely outraged um all the people um who felt they had been victims of his regime that he was getting better treatment than, than they ever got. Um, so the um the the highest um sentence in the case of a border soldier um uh was for someone who shot a border soldier who shot someone trying to escape after they had already surrendered and had their hands up in the air and still he fired, I think like 30 shots. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. So much more egregious, uh, obviously egregious led to a longer sentence. Yes. Um, was there a tremendous amount of public interest in these trials? I, I can see particularly for Hanukkah, there being a, an, an interest, but for the guards themselves was, was this something that people paid attention to? Read You know, certainly it was covered in the newspapers, but.
1: Yes, at first there was a lot of attention paid to it. Um, you know, front page of newspapers, lots of coverage, but increasingly. Um, uh, other other factors became more important, but also increasingly, particularly people in the former East. Um, even those who had been very glad to get rid of that regime started to feel like it was victor's justice. They started to feel that um, the entire East German system was being put on trial. Communism was being put on trial, uh, which some people felt was unfair, particularly East Germans who in the in the 1990s lost their jobs as the country transitioned away from communism into capitalism and democracy. And, you know, people who had had jobs in, you know, polluting inefficient factories, producing shoddy goods, all of those were closed up and a lot of people didn't have jobs. And so they were pretty angry. They thought um, this unification was you know, many people sort of dreamed, you know, we're all going to have Mercedes and BMWs like the West Germans and everything's going to be great. It's going to be easy. And when it turned out to, for some, particularly, you know, ages 50 and above to be harder than they anticipated, they started to feel like, um, they were all being scapegoated, including in these trials.
0: It it probably didn't help that there were no East German Lawyers, no East German judges. That they were, they were t- entirely Western Germans yes. conducting the proceedings. Yeah,
1: yes. Um,
0: um, just one last thing on the trials, and then we'll move on. Do you, um, what would you assess as the overall impact of these trials? That, were they, were they useful? Were they helpful? Um, I mean, it sounds like the families wouldn't have said that, that they were. Um, given the sort of this the light sentences and a lot of people just getting out, um, but maybe yeah. more on a on a on a sort of um, macro level.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for for history, <laughs> which we historians care about, um, you know, establishing the record of exactly you know what the orders had been, um, including you know have to stop so-called border violators at all at all costs even if they're women and children you know was in some of the orders um, the fact that you got all this laid out um, all this evidence laid out um, you know certainly brings about some of the the truth uh, of history but you um, you know, in terms of a sense of justice, um, you know, the overall impact that, that was certainly hardest. I mean, nobody, I think few Germans were really happy with, um, the overall impact on feeling that justice had been done. Um, yeah, uh, it, You know, there were some people who felt, look, it's good. You know, we have called people to task. I mean, individuals have had to answer. Um, um, But it also played into a narrative in parts of the former East um, that was sort of nostalgic or what they called nostalgie, nostalgia for the East um, a sense of being, um, judged. Hmm.
0: Okay. So let's, let's move on to the next section of your book. Um, I, I was, I was fascinated by sort of chapter two. Um, first, can you tell us who, who Manfred Fisher was? And then I'll, um, we'll talk about religious institutions and their, their interest in this issue. Cause I, I, I found this fascinating.
1: Uh, Manfred Fischer was a pastor of um, a church right up against the Berlin Wall in West Berlin. Uh, He got there in 1975 and um, stayed there into the 2000s. Uh, So right outside of his parish window, across the street, was the Berlin Wall. And behind the Berlin Wall in East Berlin was the church he was supposed to be the minister of, the massive old, century old Church of Reconciliation um, built in the 1890s, um, uh, a massive church. Uh, that happened to be on the border uh, between two districts of Berlin, um, Vetting in the west and Mitte in the east. So when the Berlin Wall went up along that border, the um, the church was in the death strip. Uh, it was boarded up. Nobody could go there anymore, even in the east. Um Border soldiers used it to look out. Um, uh, But ultimately, in the 1980s, in fact, in 1985, four years before the Berlin Wall was toppled, the East German regime decided to blow up the church and get it out of there Um, so that um, it would, you know, no longer be kind of... Um, this um, not only symbol of hope to people in the West that they might one day have it back, but also uh, removed any obstruction of the views of the border soldiers looking um, to see if anybody was trying to escape there. So Manfred Fisher um, was... Had to set up, um, you know, a room for worship in the parish building um, that was located in West Berlin. that had been built a few years after the wall went up, um, uh, since they couldn't get to their church. And um, when the wall fell, Manfred Fischer was absolutely adamant we have to preserve some of this wall right here on this street. The name of the street is Strasse. The wall essentially divided the street between east and west. And um, he's He literally at times during the craze of, you know, tearing down the wall in uh, late 1989 into 1990, he literally stood in front of bulldozers saying, you are not taking this part of the wall. He said, this must be preserved. And I'll never forget when I interviewed him. He said to me, hope. I felt that this was like a crime scene. And what do you do with a crime scene? You mark it off. You keep people away. You preserve it as it was to show the crime that occurred, meaning the killing of people for trying to get from East Berlin to West Berlin.
0: So that's what really drove him was that he viewed it as sort of a crime scene.
1: Yes. And of course, he had his own personal history that his own parish had been divided by it. And that, um, you know, the big church, which which older members of his parish had gone to when they were younger um, and they could see, you know, the tall bell tower above the Berlin Wall, Um, he saw how deeply grieved they were when that church was blown up and they realized they would never be able to go back to it.
0: Uh, I mean, you, you, you do mention in the early part of that chapter that there were other religious institutions that were interested in the wall as an issue. Is this something that generally religious institutions took an interest in, or was it he and the, and maybe the churches right around the wall? was just a special case that they were in there because of their proximity. And as you mentioned, the connection to the building itself.
1: Yeah. This was a special case on Bernauer Strasse. It just happened. um, I mean, certainly churches in general were against violence and, (laughs) you know, but um, you know, in this particular case, it's just really happenstance that um, on this street, first of all, that he took such a massive interest and kept pushing to preserve pieces of the wall and remember it. Um, but it happened that on the exact same block where his parish building was were two other re- religious institutions of one form or another. I mean, the one next to him, um, uh, the Lazarus... Um, parish and hospital and, um, basically assisted living care facilities. Um, they, um, they had been looking out at the wall for the same number of years that Fisher had, but they came to the opposite conclusion. They said, you know, we had it for 28 years. We don't want to see it anymore. You know, and for old people who, you know, who have come to live out the final years of their life here, they definitely don't want to look out their windows and see the wall like they have. Um, The other institution, the Sophie, uh, St. Sophie Church, its cemetery, part of its cemetery was on the ground where the East German regime had built the wall and the whole border, um, um, strip that Manfred Fischer wanted to preserve. They, the East German regime had in fact removed graves. I mean, they had dug up bodies and moved graves to make room for the Berlin Wall. And so the people in that church were like, no, we don't want to keep the wall. I mean, it's outrageous they ever built it over graves to begin with. Um, You know, let's get rid of it now. So it was um, happenstance that in in the space of one block, there were three religious institutions. um, And, you know, it was essentially two against one with Manfred Fisher being the one, but he just never gave up. And as times changed and political sensitivities changed, um, ultimately Manfred Fisher's view won out. And to this day, as I write about it, various chapters of the book, um, there is now um, the National Berlin Wall Memorial, is in fact on that street. It is eight blocks along that street where they have preserved um, some sections of the wall, foundations of buildings that were destroyed to make room for the wall. They have highlighted places where people built tunnels under the wall. They've marked places where people were killed trying to escape. They have a massive outdoor exhibit there about the history of the wall and a small indoor museum that tells the history of that wall and that is all because Manfred Fisher never gave up, and ultimately politicians started coming there, which they do to this day on. August 13th, the anniversary of the building of the wall, and November 9th, the anniversary of the fall of the wall. That National Berlin Wall Memorial has been anchored into um, the collective memory of Germany uh, in a very significant way.
0: Yeah, and for all our listeners who have not been to Berlin and when this COVID is all over and you get a chance to travel again, it's definitely worth going to see, uh, in Berlin. It's, it's, it's a wonderful museum and a a wonderful Memorial.
1: Um, And actually Craig, Craig, let me just, um, say that I actually made a few short video clips of, of myself on the grounds of the Berlin wall Memorial, talking about it in the context of my book. Um, so those exist um as well to be viewed um on the internet you know when you look up my book in Cambridge University Press um you should find those videos. That yeah
0: I was going to take- I was going to ask was there somewhere specific that uh, listeners could find them?
1: Um I w- I will
0: post them in the in the show description. Yes, so you don't have to remember. I will do that for you. So don't, don't. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there.
1: <laughs> That's okay. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's let's turn to the next section um, on uh, the Checkpoint Charlie Museum. I'm I'm sure that most of our listeners are familiar what with Checkpoint Charlie is, um, but can you tell us about the museum? Um, and it is a very interesting museum, um, and and particularly the the. the some brief biographical information on the director of the museum who gets very, very involved, um, in this issue.
1: Yes. So Manfred Fisher is one memory activist. I write a lot about the director of the checkpoint. Charlie museum, Alexander Hildebrandt is another memory activist that I write a lot about. Um, and By the way, we're coming up um, this month is the 30th anniversary of the removal of um, the Checkpoint Charlie um, checkpoint uh, back in 1990 as part of the process of uniting Germany. So we're you know 30 years out from lots of these dramatic events. Um, uh, so Alexander Hildebrandt. Um, runs a private museum so um, called the Museum at Checkpoint Charlie. Now, her husband, Reiner Hildebrandt, is the one who um, opened up that museum in the mid-1960s. He actually first opened it on Strasse not far from where Manfred Fischer ultimately would become the pastor. Um, and Reiner Hildebrandt wanted to showcase all the terrible things that were happening at the Berlin Wall. You know, He was from the West. He had been in the opposition to the Nazi regime, and now he wanted to really activate as many people as possible to draw attention to what a crime the Berlin Wall was. Uh, so he started um, collecting any artifacts he could, including how people escaped whether it was by building an underground submarine, a hot air balloon, um, kayaking um, across water. Um, He collected all sorts of these things and in 1963 moved his museum um, to, um, actually later in the 60s, moved his museum to the block where the Checkpoint Charlie crossing point was. Um, So he always wanted, sought out lots of public attention to this. And once Germany united, he kept up um, this attention to remembering how terrible the wall had been. And when he died in um, 2004, his wife, Alexandra Hildebrandt, um, took over for him. And she, too, um, was very committed. And in particular, uh, what I write about in this book was her response, what she thought Germany should do uh, and Berlin should do to remember the Berlin Wall and particularly to commemorate the victim's. And that was on the 15th anniversary of the fall of the wall um, in November of 2004. She unveiled um, outside on both sides of Friedrichstrasse where the checkpoint had been um, over 1,000 wooden crosses to people that she said had been killed uh, at the Berlin Wall or the broader East German, West German border. And she said, basically, I'm filling in for where politicians um, haven't stepped up. There is no memorial to these people. There should be. Um, And this is it. She had some families, family members of people who had been killed at the wall, join her to unveil the memorial. She also pointedly said Uh, Again, this is 2004. She said, just a few blocks from here, they are building a Holocaust memorial. That Holocaust memorial was unveiled the following year in 2005. She said, just as there is that memorial, there also needs to be this memorial to victims of the East German regime, the communists and the Berlin Wall. Now, this was very controversial um, to draw any comparison between the crimes of the Nazis and the crimes of the communists. Um, But um, she was trying to make the point that, you know, there also needs to be something to commemorate these victims. Now, even though Manfred Fischer had already begun his memorial, to do this at Bernauerstrasse. Um, she was critis- critical of that. She said, you know, it's boring. Um, it doesn't really capture the emotions there. It's not really in the center of things like we are here um, uh, at Friedrichstrasse at what used to be Checkpoint Charlie.
0: And she even made this into a little bit of an international issue, right? She, she, reached out to the Americans, um, yes. about this issue. And I, I, was, and we, we responded. <laughs> yeah. Can Ex- you tell us a little about that?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, she, she, um, is associated with, um, the conservative political, the conservative yet mainstream political party in, in Germany, the Christian democratic union, the CDU Um, you know, which is closest to the Republican Party in the U.S. And so she also knows people in the Republican Party and, um, you know, former diplomats, people who were in the military. And she um, is she understands very well the importance of publicity. And so she reached out to some of those people Uh, And she also, surprisingly, uh, reached out to the son um, of Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev is the one who was leader of the Soviet Union when the wall went up and who agreed to work with the East Germans, um, who had been pressing for it. The East German regime had been pressing for sealing off the border in Berlin. Khrushchev had agreed. Well, at the end of the Cold War, Khrushchev's son, Sergei, who looks very much like him, by the way, moved to the United States and was living in the United States, and she was in contact with him. And so he joined her also for uh, the 15th anniversary of the fall of the wall in 2004 and the unveiling of her crosses. You know, he too said, Yes uh something should be done to remember victims of the wall.
0: Yeah, that's quite a powerful visual, I, I can imagine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I do want to ask, um I want to go back to something you said it's um, a minute ago. It leads into my next question about this debate between Nazi history and wall history. Um I, I can I can totally see it being extremely controversial to sort of tie a link <laughs> Um, between the two. But this this is something that, and you highlight this in the book, that, that goes back and forth, right? That yes. what history should be remembered and how it should be remembered and, and sort of at what level of classification that history. So can you, th- this is a little complicated. So can you can sort of explain to us how, how this works?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, what it comes down to is part is really, a competition for attention and resources, meaning funding, Um, a competition among victims. It's sad but true. Um, And Germany isn't the only country where this happens. Um, uh, So Germany, where the main focus has long been on the Holocaust and the Jewish victims, um and then that expanded to other victims of the Nazi regime Sinti and roma homosexuals um handicapped people um uh that that looking at the Nazi past has been the focus of historical memory in Germany for good reason so to have with german unification in 1990 suddenly a whole new period of history, a whole new set of perpetrators and victims to think about, victims to commemorate, perpetrators to um, sort of uh, examine, investigate, analyze, um, has been a very emotionally fraught issue in Germany. Uh, Even even when I was researching this book, I remember when I did interviews, and I did, uh, in addition to using lots of archival documents for this book and all sorts of uh, speeches and Bundestag debates, I also um, did over 100 interviews with memory activists for this group. And I remember at the beginning... Uh, When I was working on this book um, in the 2000s, in the early 2000s, um, people, when I would start talking about the memory of the wall, some people would look at me like, why are you doing that? Why aren't you focusing on the Holocaust past? Why are you doing this? And they were definitely critical. And now these were people from the West, Um, who had long been schooled in the importance of um, atonement for the Holocaust and public memory directed to the Holocaust. So I remember being defensive and saying, you know, that's an incredibly important topic. And a lot of people have been working on that and are working on that. But, you know, there's also 40 years of East German history, 28 years of which the Berlin Wall stood. And that's what I'm working on. Um, so there was a lot of defensiveness on the part, of course, of Jewish groups um, and other groups who had been victims of the Nazi regimes, but also politicians who who felt, you know, the Nazi period has to be our main focus, with others saying, you know, wait a minute, this is also a really important part of German history. So there were Bundestag debates about this, which I write about, Um, lots of speeches, lots of newspaper articles, journal articles. I mean, this was a big public debate. And Hmm. ultimately, um, because partly it comes to the question of money, how much money is going to go into preserving memorials of the Nazi period, like concentration camps. Versus things that look at the East German regime, uh, like preserving pieces of the wall, preserving um, the Stasi prisons, the secret police prisons, um, where dissidents, including people who tried to escape and were caught, you know, were in prison because it was illegal. Um, so, you know, it's about money to to remember. Um and, um, attention of politicians. Uh, and this has been, um, a very interesting, important debate that has taken place in Germany and is an ongoing debate. Um, my book covers 30 years of that debate and the way in which ultimately, the memory activists that I write about were able to push through and say, "You know what? there also needs to be an important part of German public memory directed to the Berlin Wall, and that has occurred yeah let's
0: um, sort of connected to this um, I- I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how the wall is sort of represented in." popular culture, um film, art, photography, etc. And I'm obviously not I'm not asking for the full breadth of it of, you know, in every country and every place in the world. Just more curious in in sort of German popular culture.
1: Okay. Yes. Um obviously it's in, you know, James Bond movies and others, uh Jean Le Carré novels, um, but in Germany itself, the wall wasn't very present in any direct way in popular culture um, while it stood. You know, one exception was the novel Peter Schneider wrote in 1983 called Wall Jumper, that portrayed life in divided Berlin when he lived in West Berlin and often went to the East. But since the fall of the wall, um, there have been a variety of approaches. Um, these have ranged from a novel written by Thomas Brussig in 1995 called Helden Viver, Heroes Like Us. And this takes an incredibly satirical approach to the question of um, why did the wall fell and particularly who can came, claim credit it pokes fun at the desire of many people to say you know i played a really important role in the fall of the wall um there has also been uh in 2011 a musical that ran for 5 years in the heart of berlin and potsdamer platz called hinterm horizont beyond the horizon um that uh, ultimately de- they developed English subtitles and um, people from all over the world went, as well as uh, many people who would come from the East also went to see this musical. Um, fewer people from the West uh, than from the East. And the musical, I was really impressed as a historian, began with a five-minute black-and-white um introductory film with historic footage of the Berlin Wall. And somehow over the course of five minutes, they did a great job of explaining the really brutal history of the Berlin Wall. Um, So it was a little history lesson before then, you know, characters burst into song and, you know, uh lovers divided by the wall and uh all of this um but more serious approaches have um in in recent years uh looked at the border soldiers themselves because this has been the most um controversial aspect of remembering the wall in any public way other than the trials where they you know were being accused um in general popular culture the the understandable focus has been on the victims and the victims families people who who survived um telling their story uh only in you know more recent years has um, the story of the border soldiers started to be told in a more, um, it, it, in a way that humanizes them, which outrages still, you know, some Germans, but also, you know, tells the truth in the sense that if you want to understand how did this frontline border during the cold war function, Um, You you have to understand the people who worked there, you know, the border soldiers and um, who were mostly 18 to 21 and um, terrified of their superiors and often didn't realize that the Berlin Wall was, in fact, directed inwards. Um, They always believed, of course, what they were told. It's the anti-fascist protective barrier. It's against the aggressive West until they show up for work and they quickly realize it's directed against the East. So there have been uh, a bunch of TV films, some shown on prime time television, um, that um, depict um, uh, some cases at the border where people escaped or were shot trying to escape, but in fact put the focus on the border soldiers and sometimes even have them, um, featured in the films and having a border soldier agree to go on primetime public television in Germany and tell their story. You know, there are not a lot of them that are willing to do that, but, um, some have, and that has been an important part of telling a more complete history of the Berlin wall and remembering it in a more complete way.
0: Uh, You mentioned a little earlier that you did over a hundred interviews. Did you reach out to any former border guards?
1: Yes. I talked to, um, two or three of them, um, Yes. Now, I mean, the ones I spoke to are people who work with the National Berlin Wall Memorial um, that Manfred Fisher began. Um, And so they obviously are people who are willing to, you know, as it were, out themselves. Um, And so, you know, these aren't going to be the guys who, you know, are like, we did what was right. Um, but in, in the indoor exhibit at the Berlin Wall Memorial, they do include quotes from multiple different border soldiers, including the ones who, you know, totally um, still believe what they did was right and necessary
0: yeah fascinating yeah i was i I didn't think they would be lining up to uh to talk about it, um particularly because you know most of them, a lot of them are still alive. um so I can mm-hmm. see that this 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 history could still be quite raw. Um, mm-hmm. let's move on to the next part. um so first let's let's talk about what the freedom and unity movement is um and then have you explain the the peaceful revolution exhibit?
1: So the Freedom and Unity Monument. um, Oh, I apologize. Yeah, I think I said (laughs) movement. Yeah. um, So this came from a variety of German, um, particularly members of the Bundestag, um, but it was started by others um, about 10 years after the fall of the wall to say, hey. We should have some monument in the German capital that celebrates the fall of the wall and German unification. This was a great thing, a turning point in German history, European history, and world history. Um, they said, you know, we Germans were not usually good at celebrating things. We're so used to focusing on the terrible things we did in the Holocaust. But you know, we should really in in the capital city where we have all these monuments to the Nazi period and to the East German secret police and to the Wall, we should have um, a monument that celebrates freedom, meaning the freedom of East Germans and the unity of all Germans. Um, The Bundestag voted in two thousand and seven. Um, to fund and support in every way um, such a monument. Well, now here we are in 2020. <laughs> that monument was supposed to be built in 2009 for the 20th anniversary of the fall of the wall. It didn't happen. One thing after another has gotten in the way, um, and only this year. Has in fact construction begun in the center of Berlin for this um, Freedom and Unity Monument at last? Um, so uh, that answers your first question. Um, the second question: um, What uh, is to talk about the Peaceful Revolution exhibit of 2009, which is tied up with the same kind of thinking that went into the desire, the Bundestag vote to create a freedom and unity monument. And this, um, let me say, this is kind of the turning point that I write about in my book, if you will, sort of the climax of the story in my book, um, which is about this, this, um, the 20th anniversary of the fall of the wall marking a massive change in how Germany looks back at the history of the wall, and in fact, a massive change in a sense of German national identity, from one focused on the negative side of the German past, the Holocaust, um, to one that says, you know, we will always focus on that, but we also can and should focus on happy history, good history. The fact that the wall fell peacefully, uh, the fact that Germany united peacefully. These are extraordinary historical phenomenon. Uh, And we can be proud of these things. And Germans, because of the Holocaust, do not use the word proud very often. Um, But they started to do that in 2009, and a big reason for this change in the whole historical narrative um, and what I call a new German founding myth established in 2009 um, uh, came from one particular memory activist, Tom Zello, from the former East Germany, who had the idea Um, to display uh, an exhibit about the East German peaceful revolution of 1989, when tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of East Germans took to the streets in Berlin, Leipzig, and all over the country, calling for change um, and doing that in in a very largely peaceful way. Um, Tom Zello... Uh, was, yeah, he had been a dissident in East Germany and he felt uh, he had been part of those demonstrations in 1989 in East Berlin. And he felt that people in United Germany didn't pay enough attention to this, that there was all this focus specifically on November 9th, 1989, the day the wall fell. He said that was in an important context, and that context was um, this peaceful revolution, the East Germans demanding change, including tear down the wall, let us have freedom of travel. So he put together um, an outdoor exhibit to show the history of these demonstrations um, and ultimately got money from the Berlin Senate. Uh, and in 2009 for the 20th anniversary, this exhibit opened in the massive outdoor square Alexanderplatz. Um, and that, that narrative of, um, the agency of the East German people, you know, and essentially saying, it was more than just the fall of the wall. The East Germans were demanding lots of changes, but also the wall didn't fall. That's so passive. Saying, you know, look, this was a peaceful revolution. The wall was toppled. Um, And this uh, basically, as I argue, um, became a new founding myth for United Germany. And this goes back, Craig, to where we started with you asking me the importance of historical memory. Uh, And, you know, for every nation, there are key moments in their history that um, they believe make them who they are today and moments they can be proud of. And in 2009, suddenly, Uh, really, the whole German elite, you know, mirrored all over the place in the media and all sorts of speeches um, by Angela Merkel and others in 2009 um, said, look, we as a nation were born from this peaceful revolution. This was our founding moment. And, you know, part of it was the fall of the wall but it came out of this broader peaceful revolution. Essentially, it said, we Germans are now finally part of the community of nations we have long wanted to be part of, nations with democratic revolutions as their founding moments. And this narrative dominated in Germany uh, for the 20th and the 25th Anniversaries of the fall of the wall in two thousand and nine and twenty fourteen.
0: Well, as a way to sort of close discussion on your book, and I'm not sure that that, that was a great way to uh, close the end of your book. Uh, but could you tell us, and our listeners, maybe one or two things you would hope that somebody listening to you today, or and then hopefully going to read your book, will will take away from it that will things that will stay with them.
1: Yes. um, uh, I wish the book ended on that happy note. But the book ends, of course, with the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall, which was last year, November 2019. And this year in October is the 30th anniversary of German unification. And over the past year, there have been lots of discussions in Germany about um, resentment some people in the East still feel about the challenges of um, essentially life in in capitalism, challenges that, of course, many people around the world feel. Um, but what I would like listeners to take, take away from my book is um, – the understanding that the history of the Berlin wall is for many people in Germany, still a very emotional subject. Um, And for some is even, you know, controversial. Um, People's views of history change. Uh, And so, you know, uh, a book like this can, can never be done. I mean, I look at, you know, the first 30 years of how Germans are thinking about this, but this is, uh, an ongoing subject.
0: And one last thing before I let you go, um, now that this book is done, um, what are you working on now?
1: Uh, well, I'm working on two things. Um, the bigger thing is, um, my next book will look at the border, not in Berlin, but on, um, the Baltic sea coast of East Germany, because just like there was a militarized border with the Berlin wall, there was also a militarized border, uh, in the North on the sea, uh, on the Baltic sea. And there were people who escaped there by swimming or building crazy (laughs) submarines. Um, but also, you know, people lived their lives there with, um, all sorts of constraints. Um, so, um, looking into life and death on the Baltic coast of East Germany. Uh, and I'm also, uh, in this time when I can't get to Germany, like I usually would in the summer. Um, I'm writing some essays about, um, traveling in Germany with my father, something we do every summer, but sadly we can't do this summer.
0: Well, when when the books are done, uh, hopefully we can have you back and you can you can t- talk to us about them. Um, thank you. Yeah. Well, I want to, again, thank Dr. Harrison for agreeing to come on the show and talk to us about our new book. Um, and for our listeners, the title of the book, again, is After the Berlin Wall, Memory and the Making of New Germany, 1989 to the Present. Um, I also want to thank everybody for listening today, and we will see you all next time.